This week's Ukraine 242 is a rebroadcast of a conversation recorded earlier this year. Stay tuned for this timely historical analysis, and thank you for listening to Ukraine 242. You are listening Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is our collaborator and your host, Anne Levin. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people currently on the ground in Ukraine and important academic experts in Ukrainian and Slavic studies. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting from WOMR for the Pacifica Network. Our guest today is Dr. Adele Barker, Professor Emerita in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies at the University of Arizona. She received her Ph.D. in Comparative Literature from New York University. She has published widely on Russian 19th and 20th century literature and on popular culture in the late Soviet period. She has received numerous fellowships, including a National Endowment for the Humanities and two Fulbright Senior Scholar Awards. She has won an HSP Superior Teaching Award. Dr. Barker, welcome to Ukraine 242. We have spoken here on this show a great deal about Ukrainians' perception of the war. Could you tell us something about the Russians' views? Thank you for asking that question. It's, it's a long answer. We have to remember that there are a great number of people who find this whole thing absolutely reprehensible. But right now, the risk involved of going out and actually demonstrating against this war is huge. You're thrown into prison, and we have seen what happens to those particularly political and business figures over there who dissent. I mean, Navalny is in prison over there for, we'd have no idea how many years. So the risk factor is huge for ordinary Russians who may oppose the war, but dare not speak out against it. And that's huge. I was talking to friends on email in the early days of this war, but now that communication is drying up. And I feel as if I need to wait for them to reach out because I'm not going to put them at risk by reaching out to them. You know, to get back to answering your question, how Russians feel about this, I think the simple thing is that it very much depends on where you live in Russia, what your age bracket is, and how old you are. This is really crucial. There are people, oh, not many of them left, but some who very intensively and intimately remember World War II. People who went through the blockade and then Leningrad. And that sense that never again, no one ever again shall penetrate our borders. And right now, the 
government take on this is that Ukraine is full of neo-Nazis and fascists and they are aggressively, you know, plotting to do whatever to Russia. And this feeds to a lot of memory and feeling about World War II. But the thing I really want to emphasize is that in Russia today, you don't have to have been alive during World War II to remember it because the government has propagandized and memorialized the war, that official um, cult of World War II. So that cult of World War II has been used by the government for decades, particularly when I would say national sentiment was low. For example, in the years of Brezhnev and Kasigan, there was a lot of impatience with the government. Why aren't we traveling more? Why aren't we why aren't we enjoying the same things that people in the West are enjoying? And so when there was this discouragement This is the time when the Soviet government really pulled out the top brass and pulled out the parade and pulled out the flags. And parades were again touted as a way of reacquiring and refocusing national sentiment. Even this year, it was particularly interesting to watch Putin's personal participation in the Victory Day parade, holding up a photograph of his father who fought in World War II. So there are a lot of different elements to how the Russians feel about this war. There's a lot of support for it. Government propaganda, that's a lot of it. And the fact that the patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church has gotten himself involved makes this not only a political issue, but a religious issue as well. It really complicates the response to the war. Given what you just said, could you describe a little bit the difference between the church in Russia and the church in Ukraine? I think it might be good to go back 10 centuries, if you don't mind. The beginning of the Russian state was actually located in Kiev back in the 10th century. It was called Rus, R-U-S. And basically, in that first Russian state, which was just an amalgam of different princes from different principalities who invited in some Scandinavian marauders and really traitors to come and rule over them. These were people from Byzantium called Varangians. And as they began to solidify some sort of unity down there in Kiev, they reached for their religion, their alphabet, their architecture, everything from the Byzantine Empire. So what we call the Russian Orthodox branch of the Eastern Orthodox Church originally came into Rus, Russia, from Byzantium. And so even as the center 
of the Russian state moved north from Kiev into Moscow, that was still the essential state religion. The problem with all of this is that over the centuries, much of Ukraine still retains many of these peoples who still belong to some form of the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, but they became much more religiously diverse than the people in Russia. And today, particularly in Western Ukraine and in Central Ukraine, there are some who are members of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. I know it sounds very confusing, but basically the head for them is the Pope. And they're Muslims in Ukraine, many of them of Crimean Tartar heritage. There's a Jewish population. So historically, Ukraine, you know, really kind of went its own way and became more diverse ethnically and religiously. And then if you bring it up to date now, what is going on is that, oh boy, the patriarch in Moscow has supported Putin in this war. And as a result, the Russian Orthodox Church has broken from their Orthodox Church down there in Ukraine. So they are really split right now. And this brings up a kind of existential issue. Kirill, the patriarch in Moscow, has gone on record as saying that this war is a struggle for the eternal salvation of ethnic Russians. So for many Russians who are deeply religious and who return to the church after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, when even before, even under Glasner, under Gorbachev, when you could practice your religion freely now, many of these people are deeply, deeply religious and deeply linked to the Russian Orthodox Church. And Putin has also suddenly become very, very orthodox and very spiritual. <laughs> but the presence of the church in this war has raised this whole thing in addition to Putin's notion that we somehow need to keep the empire together. We need to, we need to reform our identity as an empire. And then to bring in the orthodox church as part of it raises that whole level to what Russians feel about this spiritual level. But the Ukrainian Orthodox Church will have nothing of it and has split from the Russian Orthodox Church. So there you have it. You mentioned ethnic Russians. Could you tell me what an ethnic Russian is? Yeah, basically an, an ethnic Russian would be someone who speaks Russian as their native language, who also has Russian ancestry born and brought up in Russia. And then they are also members. They're not only just ethnic Russian, but they are members of a broader community of Slavic nations, people who 
speak a language that belongs to one of the many Slavic languages, one of the family of Slavic languages, Ukrainian, Czech, Slovak, etc., Polish. For example, there are many ethnic Russians, the people who claim themselves as ethnic Russians, all over Ukraine. I would say more in the eastern part of Ukraine, where you have the border with Russia. They see themselves as ethnic Russians for several reasons. They may well have been born in Russia itself and not Ukraine. They speak Russian. And now many ethnic Russians also have a powerful allegiance to the Russian Orthodox Church. So, and then you have central and western Ukraine, which was more western-looking, where historically more of people were under the control of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. For a while, some actually were under the control of Poland for a while. But, you know, I think the term ethnic Russians, it's very malleable. I listened to Zelensky. And when he's speaking to his own people at a Congress, at a meeting, he's speaking Ukrainian. When he's speaking for someone else, he's going to be speaking Russian. When he's interviewed in Ukraine now, the average person, half of them are speaking Russian to the commentators, half of them are speaking Ukrainian. So it's been a real melting pot down there. And, you know, and for, for, for good reason. I mean, there have been Russians working in Ukraine for, for decades. And don't forget Odessa, the port. There's been a lot of people coming and going across that border and working there, living there, having relatives on either side of the border. So it's a complicated thing. And I think what's happened now is that identity has gotten bifurcated. And, you know, we are neither one or the other, and it, allegiances have gotten bifurcated, whereas throughout much but not all of the Soviet period, some people saw themselves as, first of all, Soviet, and then Russian, or then Ukrainian. So this sense of changing identities, people woke up in 1991 to the breakup of the Soviet Union. People woke up one morning and their citizenship had changed. They weren't Soviets anymore. They, had, they were either Russians or Ukrainians or Kazakhs. So this ethnic Russian thing is very complicated. Siberia is in Russia. But ask a Siberian their essential identity. Yes, Sibiriak. I'm Siberian. So you're asking about ethnic Russians. This whole idea of identity formation and questioning who are we. And I think a lot of that lies at the base of Putin's desire to reconstitute what he sees as empire. This week's Ukraine 242 is a rebroadcast of a conversation recorded earlier this year. Thank you for listening to Ukraine 242. I'm your host, Anne Levine, at WOMR for Pacifica Network, speaking with Dr. Adele Barker, Professor Emerita in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies 
at the University of Arizona. The College of Humanities Department of Russian and Slavic Studies, along with the president of the University of Arizona, published a position statement on the war in Ukraine, stating, The Department of Russian and Slavic Studies condemns Russia's assault on Ukraine. The University of Arizona is the home of many scholars and students who have spent their lives studying in Ukraine, Russia, and other nations in Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Many of us are from the region, have families and friends suffering there, and are heartbroken by the war and its toll on Ukraine and Eastern Europe. As a department within the College of Humanities, we are dedicated to educating students to become concerned global citizens. We abhor war and violence and urge leaders and citizens around the world to do everything in their power to put an end to this war, help those affected by it, promote peace in the region, and end the humanitarian catastrophe in Ukraine. In the first part of our conversation, Dr. Barker spoke at length about the history shared by Russia and Ukraine at their inception. Dr. Barker observed that in recent times, also during the years of the Soviet Union, national identities were blurred, and that Putin's desire to reconstitute what he sees as an empire results in part from this historical questioning of national identity. Dr. Barker, let's go back to that thought. Would you say that the unification that took place under the Soviet empire is the reason that Ukraine is seen as part of Russia and not a legitimate and separate nation? Um, I would say it goes farther back than that to the founding of the first Kievan state, which was really where much of what Russia sees as the basis of its culture today, its language, its religion, its architecture, its culture, its literature, it's where all of that first got its start. You know, no matter that it was brought in from the outside, that it was brought in from from the east, but that Kiev became the kernel from which everything else grew. And then the fact that orthodoxy grew there, by the time the 15th century rolled around, this is actually early 16th century, a very bizarre philosophy called the philosophy of Moscow is the third Rome took shape. And it was enunciated by this a monk named Philotheus out of Moscow. And he basically said, said Rome fell because of its sins to the barbarians. And then the second Rome was the Byzantine Empire and that it fell in like 1453 or something to the Ottoman Turks. He says, now we are the inheritor of the Christian world, and there will be no fourth Rome. This is it. This is it. And so that philosophy also included all of the areas in Russia that were really under Moscow's control, and that included the area around Kiev. So this 
sense of the primacy of this orthodox nation and orthodox rule has its sources way back. You know, just how much that is actually feeding into Putin's war, I would actually doubt. But the notion that Ukraine and Kiev are part of this nation, that Ukraine is an illegitimate country, and you'll hear that stated in the, in the Russian press, the official Russian press, which is all there is now, that Ukraine is an illegitimate country and has always been part of Russia. Part of that has deep, deep cultural and historical resonance right back to the 10th century. But, you know, the other thing is, I always say to myself, follow the money, follow the resources, follow the money trail. And, you know, when the Soviet Union was founded and all of these different areas became parts of it. And in 1922, I mean, Ukraine was the crown jewel. It was Odessa, the, the warm water port on the Black Sea, that outlet to the Mediterranean, to trade, to, to the world. The rich, abundant resources, the quality of the soil, you know, all of these things, of all of these areas, this was the crown jewel, the breadbasket of Europe. And so if someone is looking for economic and resource resonance and the desire to reacquire Ukraine, I think that would be, that would be resonance enough. But ever since it was first brought in the Soviet Union in 1922. Ukraine has been a very unwilling partner in this marriage. Stalin forced collectivization on these people down in Ukraine, and they didn't want it. They just didn't want it. And, you know, the rich peasants down there, they're called kulaks. And these were people who maybe had a farm, they had some cows there, whatever, but they were independent and the land was theirs. They dug in their heels. Absolutely. They didn't want to be collectivized. And all of this ultimately resulted in what Robert Conquest has called the harvest of sorrow, the horrible famine, the man-made famine in 33, 34. Really, Ukraine's always been a sort of thorn in the side of, of Russian leaders. As I said, if Russia has seen Ukraine as the crown jewel, Ukraine itself has been a, a very unwilling partner in marriage. You know, there was a guerrilla army down there that was lived on, I think, until the 1950s. They were carrying out raids on Soviet installations. And finally, in 59, the Soviet security police murdered the head of the guerrilla army, a guy named Stefan Bandera, who had escaped to West Germany. So there's always been a problem. Putin is not the first. Brezhnev had problems with Ukraine. Brezhnev had the, one of the hardline communist leaders down there, a guy named Pyotr Scherlist. And he thought that he was stoking Ukrainian nationalism. And he had him kicked out and had him replaced. 
So I think the larger issue is that Ukraine has been a thorn in Soviet leaders' side. In the Soviet Union, everyone was supposed to be equal, these 15 republics, except they were equal in name only. And um, when you have a centralized economy, um, who gets what is, is crucial. And what is taken from the republics to feed those in the center becomes crucial. So, in a sense, all of the republics became at a certain time a thorn in the side of Soviet leaders. But I would say the two that were the toughest thorns were Ukraine and Georgia. It was supposed to be the great Soviet family. Well, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't a family. Thanks, Adele. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. listening to Ukraine 242. Our guest today, Dr. Adele Barker, Professor Emerita in the Department of Russian and Slavic Studies at the University of Arizona. I am your host, Anne Levine, reporting for the Pacifica Network from WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts. Editing by Ursula Rudenberg. Recording by Michael Levine. Music is an excerpt from Three Bagatelles, Opus 1, by the Ukrainian composer Valentin Silvestrov. To see a photograph of Dr. Barker and all of our guests, go to the gallery at ukraine242.com. If you wish to send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, please call 510-883-3115 and record your message. It will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-station radio network. That number is 510-883-3115. Until next week, on Ukraine 242.